Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. Hello and welcome to Premier League All Access with me, Sam Matterface, and Talk Sports Chief Football Correspondent Alex Crook. Plus, today we've got Kevin Hatchard, the international football expert, alongside us for what is a review of an amazing weekend in the Premier League. So here's what's coming up. The title race is hotter than it has been for a while. One third of the season remaining. The heat is on. Comes through to Gakpo, he's going to finish it off. And they are showing why they are Premier League leaders. Ruthless and unsettling. One of our better games definitely today and um, I'm really happy about it. Five from five since the turn of the year for the Gunners. That mean business and they keep the pressure on at the top of the table. Finished here at Turf Moor, Burnley nil, Arsenal five. And it has to be perfection because that's what this last level demands. And the chase is on. Rodri stepping onto it and he has fired it amongst a crowd of players. Fire and deflection into the back of the net. Game on. Manchester City won, Chelsea won. Looks very entertaining for the people. Uh, for us a setback as we wanted the three points today. But very tight between the three. And as much as they pushed for the winner, Chelsea held out. Thrilling game at the Etihad. It finishes Manchester City won, Chelsea won. Try to recover because they have time and play a good game. In the title chase, the heat is on. Gentlemen, hello. I hope all is well and everyone's had a very good weekend. Kev, you okay? Yeah, great. Another good weekend covering the German protests as well as the German football and another defeat for Bayern. So it's been lively over there. OK, if I gave you 10 seconds to tell me what the protests were about so everybody knew, would you just tell us? Uh, they are about a potential uh, investor deal to do with international media rights and fans are not happy. Remote control cars on the pitch at the weekend. Oh, wow. That is that. That is inventive. You know, we just throw tennis balls over here. Uh, but remote control cars, that's a new development. I like that. Uh, Crook, you OK? I'm good. I'm good. Still, uh, still in a bit of pain with the ribs, but had a good weekend. And you did the Sunday session on uh, Sunday, uh, five hours of fun with Perry Groves, and you got to watch Manchester United and and Sheffield United completely collapse in their game against Brighton. So it was a it was a fun day all round. Uh, yeah, eventually, you know, it was a serene start for Manchester United. Then it all got a little bit stressful, but uh, never in doubt. Really, five in a row on the up. Manchester City won, Chelsea won. Let's start at the Etihad Stadium. Um, well, why did a team that started with De Bruyne, Foden, Haaland, Doku and Alvarez struggle to score against Chelsea? Crook? I think it was just one of those days. You know, you look at the stats, 31 shots, 
Erling Haaland has missed some chances that he usually stick away for fun. And you have to give Chelsea a little bit of credit as well. It was one of their best performances of the season. In fact, two of their best performances of the season have come against Manchester City. And if City end up not winning the title at the end of the season, they may look back at not just this game, but the one at Stamford Bridge, that chaotic 4-4 draw that you and I were at, as defining moments. So I don't think it's a cause for major concern for Manchester City, but I think it's brilliant for the rest of us because it has given us now, genuinely, a three-team title race for the rest of the season. And this is something that we were talking about on the show on Saturday uh, on TalkSport when we were building up to the weekend. The, the, the heat is on. The, the race for the title is a proper race. Liverpool, they're putting goals and they're putting points on the board and keeping their role as front runners. Arsenal playing very well at this moment in time. And Manchester City, obviously we know, are capable of going on these brilliant runs. But they're faltering slightly too. And defensively, they're not perfect. I think one of the reasons that they failed to score, Kevin, was because their blend in midfield wasn't perfect. They've lacked a little bit of extra silk that sometimes is brought by the likes of uh, Bernardo Silva or maybe even John Stones when he moves into to midfield because Akanji isn't as smooth in those in those moments as his teammate is. And I say that the reason they didn't score, they didn't score as many goals as you would usually expect from Manchester City having 31 shots. Obviously, they got on the score sheet uh, in the second half of that game. What do you think, Kev? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a really high bar where we're used to Manchester City being, you know, damn near flawless in so many games. I thought they created the chances. I thought one of the big concerns, actually, was how vulnerable they were in transition. And mm. I thought Chelsea actually made some really good positions on the counter-attack. I think if Nicholas Jackson had been a little bit more polished, um, a little bit more decisive at times, might have made a difference. But we're expecting so much of a guy that has such a short track record. And there is definitely some quality there. There's a rawness about his game. There's an unpredictability. But there are flashes of real potential there. I thought he caused them all kinds of problems on the counter. So... I thought they created the chances, but the biggest concern was how ragged they were, especially in the first half, going back the other way. So, you know, Chelsea deserve credit for the way that they kept them at bay. Interestingly, uh, I thought tactically Pochettino got it spot on and should be credited with that, especially in the first hour when they, they pressed high and denied Manchester City time on the ball, forced them into errors, turned the ball over and got in behind several times. The fact that Chelsea managed to do that was a plus, but the fact that they wasted so many of those opportunities was a big minus too. They're very sort of, they're like, they're like teases, aren't they, Jackson and Sterling? They get you into promising positions. They give you almost everything and then snatch it away at the final moment. If they can sort that out, then, uh, you, you know, Chelsea have got a, a major plus on their hands. Uh, but uh, one thing they might have done, Crook, is give the rest of the Premier League a blueprint on how to take on Manchester City, because that's twice now. They've taken the game to them and managed to get something from it. Yeah, and I think uh, that, that sort of highlights what you're saying about their d defensive frailties. Was it one clean sheet now, I think, in 12 in the Premier League? Hmm. So clearly they are a team that can be got at, and I think you have to be brave against Manchester City. And maybe too many teams aren't brave enough. It's the old cliche of when United were dominating and they'd almost win a game in the tunnel because opponents were just overawed by who they were up against. So, so maybe Chelsea have, as you say, sort of given everybody else notice that this City team are not quite what they have been in the past. And 
there are weaknesses that can be exploited. Uh, Chelsea switched to a back five and in the end to try and keep Manchester City at bay. Rodri came up uh, with the cracker. He scored the equaliser seven minutes from time. Um, this draw means that uh, City now sit third in the table, but they have a game in hand. That game in hand is against Brentford. And actually, I put in my notes, I feel sorry for Brentford who faced City on Tuesday because Brentford can't defend and could lose by five or ten goals at the Etihad in midweek because City will want to take their frustrations out on someone, Kevin. Yeah, but Brentford have caused them some problems in the past. We know that, but it's not quite the same Brentford as we're used to seeing, I don't think. I don't think they're quite as diligent defensively. I'm sure we'll come on to that, but I thought they were awful at times at the back against Liverpool, so that doesn't bode particularly well. I think just globally about the title race itself, I think what's interesting is we're used to seeing City go up against one team, aren't we? That's where their focus usually is. They don't usually get attacked on two sides when we get to this kind of stage of the season. The only way you really do it is if all the other kind of big hitters can take a chunk out of them over the course of the season. And I think that's what it's still going to need. I still think City are favourites by quite some distance, but it's great to see them put under this kind of pressure at this stage of a season. I do think uh, Stan Kroenke and um, the geezer John W. Henry from Liverpool got together in the summer and said, come on, we both got to give it a go, <laughs> otherwise we're never going to take them down. American <laughs> owners assemble. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could just imagine uh, Edu, uh, the uh, German guy who's filled in as sporting director for uh, uh, for Liverpool, John W. Henry and Stan Kroenke all turning up in Marvel costumes and going, yeah. come on, we can take Pep down, this big <laughs> juggernaut, you never know. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Possibly the title race is hotter than it has been for a while. Diaz is a mistake by the defender and it comes through to Gakpo. He's going to finish it off. And top spot Klopp is having no drama this year. 
at Hounslow's famous bus stop. It's 4-1. How on earth did Dejan Kulisevsky squeeze that in from a tight angle? Spurs are level. Fulham nil, Aston Villa 2. Ollie Watkins at the double. A lethal strike from the England frontman. Nottingham Forest 2, West Ham United nil. The points go the way of Nuno Espirito Santo's side. And it's Callum Hudson-Odoi. Equaliser. Newcastle 2, Bournemouth 2. Matt Ritchie on as a substitute. Game on, Fulham 1, Aston Villa 2. Pedro Neto, he's far ahead of his other teammates, chops back onto his left, rolls it back, brilliant goal, Joe Gomez, 2-1, Wolves counter-attack. This is just getting ridiculous now, that's 11 goals for Arsenal in the last two games, 21 league goals from the turn of the year, they've been outstanding today and Havertz deserved his goal today, Burnley nil, Arsenal 5. That is the full-time whistle. What a stunning game this has been. It finishes Manchester City 1, Chelsea 1. Arsenal don't have any cup commitments. They have European commitments, but they're not expected to go as deep, I don't think, as Manchester City and Liverpool in European competition. Um, But they absolutely smacked Burnley on Saturday and showed their firepower, Bukayo Saka scoring uh, once again, and also now becoming the, the Premier League player with the most goals in 2024. But then again, Crook, everybody smacks Burnley. Well, what do you want me to do here? Do you want me to wax lyrical about Arsenal, who I thought were terrific, Saka and Erdegaard in particular, or do you want me to tell you how rubbish Burnley are? Um, just because it there, Crook. It's okay. It's, it's okay. We, we know how bad they are. Can they win the title, I suppose, is the real question. Well... <laughs> We all thought that lack of a number nine would be a problem. But you look at their form since the winter break, 21 goals in five games in the Premier League, and they are getting goals from lots of different areas. You told me, to be fair, when I was suggesting that maybe Saka would come off the boil, that if you look beyond his numbers, actually he's playing quite well. And and certainly now he's started to deliver again. I think Erdegaard is a contender for player of the season. I think the way that he drives that team on, the goals that he scores, the assists that he gets, I think he's been absolutely sensational. But this was a dream game for Arsenal because Burnley just made no attempt to resist. You know, it's literally for the second week in a row, they came up against an opponent who were happy to roll over and have their bellies tickled. And I'll repeat it again, the free pass that Vincent Company has been given by everybody this season, by Burnley fans, by the media, is a joke. They're one of the worst teams the Premier League's ever seen. You are in the media, though. Um, <laughs> well, I've not given him a free pass. That. I've not well, given him a go, free pass. It's not the media, is it? It's not one big amorphous outfit. Yeah, certain <laughs> sections of the media maybe have not quizzed him as as maybe you might, but it's not everyone. Look, he wrote some interesting quotes in his uh, program notes uh, this week, saying that we are an improving Premier League team. We've got the fight. We've got the desire. We still believe <laughs> that we can stay in this division. Um, and then lost 5-0 without really putting up a fight. Um, Listen, Burnley, not one of those subjects that you're going to dwell on because ultimately there isn't much to say. We've said it it 15 times this season. They play with such a naivety, such a naivety, that a good team's always going to pick them apart. There's probably mitigating reasons behind it, but ultimately you've got to put up a a better fight if you want to stay in the Premier League. And we'll get to Sheffield United as well in just a few moments because they they too have uh, seemingly decided to to, to collapse. Uh, Brentford, though, uh, were beaten by Liverpool and they collapsed in defence as well. Look, I, I thought the, the second half performance was dreadful. Um, the way they just fell apart. I mean, Liverpool, good team. They've got great attacking battalion, but the defence was, was, was terrible. Um, 
Can anyone really boast the attacking resources that Liverpool have got when everyone is fit, Kevin? Because they've got such a variety in their front five and, and every different combination gives you a headache. Yeah, I think they're tremendous. And I I always like to see attacks that can hurt you in lots and lots of different ways. And I think Liverpool have that sheer power and chaos of Nunez, although you have to add on the the delicacy of that wonderful finish for the first goal. You never know what you're going to get from him. Jota, I think, is a brilliant player. I think he's just so smart. The movement's so good. Technique's so good. Great finisher. I like Gakpo as well. I think he comes mm. on, he connects everything. He, you're not quite sure where he's going to pop up. He's a bit of a nightmare for defenders to track, and he's quite a silky player as well. Salah coming on as a sub. I mean, that just doesn't seem fair, does it really? You unleash <laughs> him and he does all kinds of damage. Uh, and they they just cause so many problems. And I think as a team, one of the weapons they have is just that sheer intensity as well. You know, the press is a weapon because it wins you the ball high up the pitch and you can do so much damage. So I still think Liverpool defensively have some issues to solve. I think they ask a hell of a lot of their individual defenders and that may cost them in the end. But going forward... There aren't many teams in Europe who are a better watch, really. Yeah, and that is one of the issues that they have, which is when they fail to to keep hold of the ball in the high areas, they lose it quickly, they can be counted on, and they are sometimes a little bit slow to get back and put those challenges in, which stop people uh, from creating opportunities. It's why they've conceded maybe too many goals this season. Even though their defence isn't one of the worst, it's actually one of the best in the league, but they always seem to concede a goal, sometimes the first goal, which sparks them into life. Um, they did concede here in this game, but after the game was completely dead. I'll talk about maybe the Tony decision uh, for what could have been a penalty a little bit later on when we just have a quick review of uh, some of the decisions from this weekend. But ultimately, Brentford were the masters of their own downfall. How are they going to, to recalibrate themselves ahead of a trip to Manchester City, Crook? Very difficult. And it was interesting listening to your post-match chat with Thomas Frank, and he agreed with you, their, their big problem is defensively. Certainly their big problem was big Nathan Collins at the weekend. He was absolutely terrible, wasn't he? Um, had a real afternoon to forget, so I'm sure Erling Haaland will be licking his lips at that prospect. But it's just interesting, you know, just looking at the title race as a whole, we spend a lot of time talking about no number nine for Arsenal, where are the goals coming from, all Liverpool's attacking riches. Obviously, we know about City's attacking players. What could decide this title race is the fact that Arsenal, for me, have got the best centre-back pairing in the league in Saliba and Gabriel. And that, that's why they don't concede the volume of goals that City and Liverpool do. And it's probably why they fell away so badly last season when Saliba was injured. If those two stay fit, maybe you have to start to give Arsenal the edge. Well, how many times have I been telling you that the best defence wins the league? And Liverpool were top for a large part of the sort of January time. And why I was telling you I thought they were, were going to end up going and win the, the title is because they had the best defence up until till recently. And that's fallen away over the course of the last few weeks. And Arsenal have taken over uh, as the best defence. But it's all very tight at the top. And, and goal difference is, is tight as well as a result of that. And, and you know... Now Liverpool and Arsenal are the top scorers in the league when they've overtaken Manchester City because of the goals that they've been racking up too. So it really is toe-for-toe toe on every single front. Um, Luton-Liverpool sounds like a really fun game on Wednesday night as well. Both these two teams, the Manchester City and Liverpool, playing in midweek. Arsenal playing in the 
Champions League. And Luton certainly uh, enjoyed their afternoon at Kenilworth Road. They might have enjoyed it a little bit more had they got the equaliser and they threatened to certainly get one of those later in the game. 2-1 Manchester United ended up winning. Um, talking of chaos, Crook, that was a bit of a, um, I don't know, it's a blood pressure riser, wasn't it? Yeah, it certainly was, especially when Bruno Fernandes, for reasons known only to himself, could have taken the ball to the corner in the last minute stoppage time, decides to shoot from an impossible angle, allowing Luton to get the ball up the other end. And that's where the chance came from when Barkley hit the bar. I was literally fuming live on air with Fernandes and would have been probably combusting had that gone in. But chaos is the word because they started so well. You know, Rasmus Hoyland tells us he means the second goal. Only he knows that, but I think it's a reflection of where his confidence is at this moment in time that he even attempted it. He's terrific. You know, the way he held the ball up, the way he's a focal point for the team to get out from the back quickly. He literally ran himself into the ground by the end. Cobby May knew the same. I think he should be on the plane for the Euros. A lot of people are telling me it's too much too soon, but why not? Rio Ferdinand went to Euro 96 for a bit of experience under Terry Venables. Didn't do his career any harm. But in terms of the game itself, they had so many openings, United, to make it more comfortable. But the decision-making in the final third, it was similar to that Newport County FA Cup game. You know, they, they just made the wrong decision. That just gave Luton reasons to come forward. And fair play to Luton, they always give their all. But it could have been it could have been five or six for United had they just made a, a better call when they got in front of goal. Uh, Luton had 72 transition opportunities across the contest, Kevin. The third highest total for a team in the Premier League this season, meaning there's constant moments in the game where Manchester United are overexposed and desperately flailing to get back. Whose responsibility is that to fix? Whose responsibility is it for it happening in the first place? Because it felt afterwards in his interview that Eric Ten Hag was blaming the players. Yeah, I think it's a mix of things. I think the structure's wrong. I've felt that for most of the season. I think they're far too easy to play through. I think if you look at that, go all the way back to that first game against Wolves, and Wolves just had the run of them. Mateus Cunha was just slaloming his way uh, through that team constantly. Obviously, Casemiro, you know, got exposed a couple of times and could easily have been sent off. I do feel structurally they're not right, especially with it, especially out of possession. There's a lot of good things. Mainu, you've talked about, I think is brilliant. I wouldn't take him to the Euros because I would give him a rest. And I think that's really, really important. I, I think it's important for him to try and have a, a clear summer, go again as a full senior, uh, senior, a Manchester United player. But I think that's important <laughs> mentally for him because he's had a lot going on in the last few weeks, rightly. I think he's one of the most exciting young midfielders uh, in the Premier League, maybe in Europe at the moment. I know we hype players, but I think it's true. I- I'm not seeing a guy in his position of that age with that kind of maturity because he has real discipline and he plays like a guy much, much older. Jude Bellingham's slightly different because of the way he plays. He's further forwards, but there's a similarity in the sense of how he interprets the game and how he doesn't panic and how he doesn't get overawed by anything. Hugely impressive, but I would give him a rest. But I do think for all the positives, and there are some with Manchester United in the last few weeks, I still think it's all, so much of it is individual quality and it's not structure. And I just feel without the ball, I'd be really interested to see what happens in that Manchester derby. Because without the ball, I think they're in big, big trouble at times. Oh dear. Um, Nottingham Forest beat West Ham by two goals to nil on Saturday. David Moyes said it was a tight game, but they created zero big chances despite the fact they had three shots on target in the game. 
yes, there's a Lucas Paqueta-shaped hole in their attack, Kev, but that cannot be a recipe for going eight games without a victory. No, I think that's fair to say. I do think they miss Paquetar a lot. I think he's their most creative player. I think he's a wonderful player, actually. Um, I like Kudus very much as well. I, th- I think the problem here is that the fans don't like the style of football. They want to be entertained. I-, I think that's a fair expectation. But you look at the overall season and it's very good. You know, they're on a bad run. That can happen. But you look at the position... In the but Premier they don't League, care, they don't care. They don't care. They don't, you know, we can sit here. David Moyes can sit there and stare down the barrel of a camera's lens and say, "But we won a European trophy." They don't care. They, 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 they just, they, have had enough of him. They want him out, and that's it. So surely, instead of this ridiculous scenario we've got, where the fans are in open revolt and want him out, yeah, uh, and he hasn't got a contract beyond the end of the season, and West Ham are throwing points away hand over fist. Surely something, you know, either he's got to come out and say, don't worry, I'm leaving, and then the atmosphere will, will change. Or they've just got to pay him off and, you know, get somebody in until the end of the season or something. Someone's got to do something because the way they're limping on at this moment in time means that the season's going to fizzle out and all you're going to do is just going to have a bad atmosphere around the place. And we know what that's like at West Ham. It's not helpful. Yeah. It's difficult. It's really difficult because I think West Ham fans probably look across the Brighton and see some of the football that they play and they think, well, we've got great players. We've got, you know, Pakitar and Kudus and we've got quality. Why are we serving up this, you know, dull tripe? But the problem is some of that dull tripe has worked and they won a major European trophy last season. First one they'd won or first trophy they'd won since 1980. And... You know, I know West Ham are an ambitious club. I know they've got a big stadium. I know there's a proud history, but they are West Ham. And it wasn't that long ago that they were looking over their shoulders regularly, you know, whether they were going to be relegated or not. So I get it. I know they want great football and I understand that completely. Whether there's a Charlton element about this in terms of care for what you wish for, I don't know. I just think it's a really weird disconnect between... The results, which aren't great at the moment, but overall in the season are fine. And they're again in the last 16 of a European competition and the standard of football, which is not great. So at some stage, they've got to provide, I agree with you, they've got to provide clarity about Moyes. And he's got to have a think of how can I tweak this so the football is a bit more progressive and the fans do come away thinking, great, that was really what we wanted to see. So he's got to meet them halfway, Moyes. But I'm not sure I'm comfortable about ditching him at this stage. I'm not sure that's warranted or fair. I, I, I think it's all about communication, isn't it? And it's about PR. And if you're West Ham and you look over the history over the course of the last few years, the protests that have gone on, I remember someone running on to the middle of a pitch with a corner flag and planting it in the middle of their London stadium turf when they weren't happy about something else that was going on there. The fans aren't satisfied. The reason they're not satisfied is because when they were told, we're moving out of Upton Park, we're going to this brand new shiny stadium in the middle of a, a, a shopping centre park or the Olympic Park, whatever you know your viewpoint on that, the fans weren't convinced. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to stay at their spiritual home. They were convinced to go to Stratford because they were told that that means that they're going to be a, a more progressive team that fights at the top and were fighting for Champions League qualification. Okay, that takes time. But... It hasn't happened fast enough for them. It, it, they, have, they, they feel like they've been sold a bit of a pup in terms of being forced to move and then things haven't been delivered. And it isn't exciting. 
for whatever reason, they're not happy. And that's up to them. But if you are West Ham and you know that there is a, a, an issue with your fan base, you've got to get much better at trying to placate them. And that's on the organisation yeah. more than... And David Moyes could take responsibility because he's front of house. But your communication has got to be much, much better. I think it sums up their muddled thinking, to be honest, because I think when we were told in December that, that there was every chance that David Moyes would sign a new contract, I think that was genuinely a plan in David Sullivan's head. But obviously, a few results have gone against them. Fans are protesting and, and he's rallying back from that. We know there's disconnect at board level. We know that Tim Stiton wants to go in one direction, David Moyes another. And I think David Sullivan, as we mentioned before, feels like he's stuck in the middle until he decides with some clarity what he wants to do. I think that clouded signalling will continue. But I think we have to be careful in the media about lecturing supporters about what we think of their football club because this is not a small minority of West Ham fans. This is pretty much every West Ham fan you speak to wants yeah. a change of manager. They pay their money. They watch the football. Ultimately, if they tell us they're not happy and it's not good enough, I think we have to respect that. A quick word on Calvin Phillips because I think that um, the debate over him, his position and who should play instead of him for England is becoming a little bit ridiculous. Um, none of this is Calvin Phillips' fault, by the way. And it seems now that all everyone wants to do is tear him down and say, oh, well, he's rubbish, he shouldn't be anywhere near the England squad. It wasn't his fault that Manchester City bought him. It certainly wasn't his fault that once Manchester City had bought him, Pep decided not to play him. And if you speak to Pep Guardiola, he will openly tell you, it's my fault. I didn't give him the opportunities to get himself into the team. He's a Rodri in front of him. There's not much chance he's ever going to dislodge that fellow. Um, if you ever thought that he was going to walk into West Ham and just hit the ground running after basically not playing any football for two years, then I'm afraid you're foolish because no Premier League player can do that. Even Erling Haaland coming back from a, a, a small absence looks rusty when he first gets back into the team. Kevin De Bruyne will tell you that even he's not up to speed and he's making a massive impact after five months out. So having two years out, it's obviously going to take him time. All this talk about the Euros, all this talk about who you know who's going to go instead of him, why he shouldn't be on the plane, it's almost like victimisation. He hasn't been picked yet for a start. And if he is picked, the debate should be why the manager has decided to pick him. Nothing to do with him. It's not his fault. Yeah, it's about confidence as well. And everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. You look at what happened in the game against Bournemouth, that very early goal. He got played into trouble by Kurt Zuma. That wasn't his fault. And and all of the headlines were, oh, Phillips has made some terrible error. Well, actually, he got played into really bad trouble in that game. And when your confidence is fragile, which is going to be, as you say, Sam, if, you're not, if you don't play, you lose that rhythm. Then you start to doubt whether you can actually do this because you haven't done it for so long and it becomes a vicious circle. Then you go to West Ham. It's probably the worst time to have joined West Ham because they're in a really bad run of form right now. So there's all that negativity that we've just been talking about and every mistake you make you think is going to be a big one. The, the first yellow card is is on him. It's it's so silly. You know, the, the shove, he doesn't need to do that. It's, it's really pointless. And so he's then backed himself into a corner and he's a bit late on the second one. That can happen. But it feels like everything that could go wrong for him is going wrong. It's just about fighting through it. This is what happens with players sometimes. They have a really rough trot. They've got to try and fight through it. But the England thing will take care of itself. He's got to try and play as, as well as he possibly can. And if he's in the squad, he's in the squad. But I can't see him being in the team. But then, you know, that's not his fault either. Sheffield United nil, Brighton five. 
Um, embarrassing performance from Sheffield United, really, uh, who have now conceded five goals three times in a row at home. Wow, that takes some doing. Um, the tone was set by Mason Holgate, and then they went to pieces defensively. I mean, what on earth is Mason Holgate doing? 13 minutes into a game, making a challenge like that. The referee didn't even give a yellow card initially. I mean, he had, VAR had to get involved before he was sent off. It was crazy. Yeah, it was a shocker uh, from the on-field referee not to spot it. It was an absolutely terrible tackle from a player who's had a miserable season. His debut for Southampton was a 5-0 defeat. His debut for Sheffield United was a 5-0 defeat at home. And here he is in his second home game getting himself sent off for just something he didn't need to do. I was I was flabbergasted the referee didn't spot it. I was flabbergasted that Ahmed Hodzic, his teammate, trying to come out and defend him after the game. I think he needs to take a look at himself as well. But it just sums up the lack of discipline and the lack of belief at Sheffield United. They've conceded 65 goals now. I think it's Swindon, isn't it, who hold the record, having conceded 100 in their one season in the Premier League. Well, that is under threat. And you have to say, first couple of games, it looked like Chris Wilder had made them more difficult to beat, had made them more defensively watertight. That certainly isn't the case anymore. And I put them in the same bracket as Burnley. Two clubs just wasting our time in terms of the Premier League. Just, just send them to the Championship now. It's absolutely pointless. Well, I mean, that's a little bit harsh, isn't it? But I, I do think, again, a little bit like Burnley, it's to do with the people above the managers that have caused the issue here. Because the, the, the ownership saga at Sheffield United, which was supposed to be resolved last year, there was a Nigerian billionaire who was going to buy it. It is a club that is up for sale and the Saudis that own it don't want to invest in the playing staff and haven't. Um, they've sold their best players prior to the start of the season. It was impossible for whoever was going to be in charge and obviously Heckingbottom suffered from that and now Chris Wilde is, is finding that too. But it does it does cause you a problem, doesn't it, when you've got this, this, this thirst and this desire, this absolute sort of be-all and end-all if you're in the Championship to get to the Premier League and then when you get there, you literally do nothing. It's so it's such a strange sort of way of operating that you're so desperate to get into this division. But once you get there, you're almost like, oh, here, we've done it now. I'm just going to sit here and just, you know, enjoy the ride. No wonder the fans are kicking off. Yeah, it's difficult if, if you don't try to compete. And they had a worse squad when they hit the Premier League than they had done when they went up from the Championship. Illiman and Jai leaving was huge because he was a big source of goals and assists. And it took them, you know, a long, long time, understandably, to actually acclimatise to it. And when you've got a defender flying into a challenge like that completely recklessly, you've, you've got no chance, absolutely no chance. And I think the, the problem is Chris Wilde is now stuck because he wants to be defensively solid. That's what he's talked about a lot. But they have to try and win games. So th they're trying to risk things, but then they're leaving themselves exposed at the back. And they're not good enough. Yeah, that's the basic truth of it. Man for man, they aren't good enough. And mm. there is a big gap between the Premier League and the Championship. I think that's a gap that's getting wider. Uh, that's why I massively applaud what Luton have done. Uh, and I think that's an amazing yeah. coaching job that Rob Edwards has done. Because I was sceptical about them. And I hold my hands up. They've been, not only in the way that they've embraced the direct part of what they do, but they've adapted it to the Premier League, which is a hard thing to do. They can hurt you in a lot of different ways. Uh, it's not all about direct football. They can play through Ross Barkley. They can advance through midfield. So you can do it, but it takes a hell of a coaching job. And I just think Sheffield United look 
smashed to pieces in terms of morale as well. And I think once mm. that settles in, it's really difficult. And against Brighton, it's hard enough with 11. Against 10, they're going to tear you to pieces. Well, uh, Zerbi went there to tear them to pieces. He, he, the way he set up, he, he thought, I've, yeah. I, I can have this lot. And, he, and they did easily. Um, but you're not the only one to have uh, underestimated Luton Town. I'll go back to the preview podcast and Wembley Stadium when I turn around to the boys and said, is it definitely Sheffield United and Luton and one other? And Crook went, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and started talking about the possibility that Luton might not get as many points as uh, that famous team, uh, Derby County. Uh, but he doesn't tell Rob Edwards that. When he goes to hang out with <laughs> Robbie Baby, it's always, oh, God, I can't believe so many people wrote you off, Rob. It's so out of order of them. Uh, mate, I would never have done that, hoping desperately he hasn't seen the podcast from the beginning <laughs> of the season. Let's have a quick word about some of the VAR decisions this week. I thought it was an interesting week for the officials. Uh, Crook, would you, you would have taken charge of Men in Black on Sunday session. Did you get to that feature on Sunday? Did you this week? Yeah. Okay, good. So uh, you'll have a, a little bit more did. of a, an insight than you usually do about these things because uh, someone would have done some research for you, which is good. Um, the, uh, the official Lewis Smith not having an easy debut in the game between Fulham and Aston Villa. Uh, ended up uh, playing five minutes of added time, of which the ball was in play for 57 seconds and didn't add any additional time uh, onto it. But, you know, it was a swift promotion. Um, it wasn't too long ago he was refereeing in the National League. He's done eight championship games or in the EFL this year, so he will need time to settle. Um, some of the incidents that weren't mentioned, I don't think, on Match of the Day, Andrew Robertson, who I think should have given away a penalty when he clearly... Uh, seemed to uh, sort of ransack Ivan Tony. That was at 3-0 in the game. Not necessarily sure it wouldn't have changed the nature of the game because Liverpool vulnerable uh, defensively. I thought that was odd. Norgard on Jota. Hmm. Can you really go and knee someone in the chest? Is that okay? Not necessarily sure that's okay. Anyone got any thoughts on that? It was very clumsy. Kev will. Uh, uh, yeah, it was very clumsy, and, and you know he then lands on him. I, I, I thought there was some really odd decisions in general. I, I, the Robertson Tony one, I can see both sides of that. Um, but I, yeah, it was a the Jota one was was an ugly one. I think as well, just the the one that's really got me, and I've been desperate to talk about this. I know, but I can't quite get my head around it is the Newcastle one. And I know they did talk about that on Match of the Day, but I do want to talk about it because... So, for people who haven't seen it, um, Fabian Cher is being pulled. So, that's the first thing. And that shouldn't happen. Yeah. I get that. But when the ball is played into the penalty area, Cher is offside. Now, the whole thing about offside is you're gaining advantage by being closer to the goal than you should be. So, you're mm. closer to the goal than the last defender. Therefore, you are affecting the play. You are he shouldn't be pulling, but he is because Cher has made that move. Yeah. To then suggest that ah no, it doesn't matter because he's offside. That that doesn't matter because it's prolonged holding. And I get that the the wording of the law allows this. I understand that. This is one where we need to look at the laws instead of necessarily the refs. But I just think, where are we at? If you'd have had a situation where a guy got played through and he was offside and the goalkeeper comes and cleans him out, it's not penalty because it's offside. So how is this any different? Well, it's interesting uh, because there's a couple of 
sort of nuances of the law here, uh, which make it very interesting and very boring all at the same time. Um, <laughs> That's what we do. Is, the first thing is, is that the guy's shirt is being pulled outside the penalty area so that's where it starts. It starts a good two yards outside the penalty area. But there is provision in law that if sustained contact starts outside the penalty area and continues inside, then you can give a penalty. It's a lot of can gives here, by the way. Uh, so there's, there's sort of outs for referees. But the IFAB did post on their question and answer thing on their app. If you've got the app, right, if you're really bored, and you, and you struggle to sleep at night, download the IFAB, Laws of the Game app. It, I mean, if you, if you read it, uh, you'll fall asleep, but it, sometimes you can play one of the quizzes. And again, um, I mean, the, no, listen, if, you, if, you, if you'd rather use Tinder, fair play to you. But, you know, every now and again, treat yourself to one of these Q&A sessions on the IFAB app um, because they, they chuck out things like this. An attacking team is in an offside position at the moment when their teammate takes a free kick. After the ball is in play, a defending team player pushes the attacker inside the penalty area before the attacker starts moving towards the ball. What is the correct decision? Oh, what a teaser. What a teaser. And then they give you the answer. The referee awards a penalty kick because the attacker is in an offside position, is fouled before any offside offence has been committed. The offender receives the appropriate disciplinary action. So there was already an example on the IFAB Q&A sheet of uh, how to deal with that situation. Kev, does that, does that allay all your fears? No, because I knew that was true, but it annoys me. <laughs> it really annoys me because it's like he's offside. He is offside, so therefore he's affecting the game. But what he's came first, Kev? The chicken or the egg? He was <laughs> yeah. being pulled first. Look, the, the, the pull is stupid, and, and yeah. it amazes me how boneheaded you deserve, are. You deserve everything you get if you're going to do that. Yeah, but I just think it's yet another example of laws, and I don't know, they've made them so complex, and I I understand some of the complexity of it, but I just think I, I don't agree with the whole ethos of that. I, no. I really don't, because I think, as I say, if a player had been sent clean through but was offside and got cleaned out by the goalkeeper, it wouldn't be a pen because it's an offside offence. So I just, I, yeah. I find the whole thing difficult to swallow. And the other one, I'm getting oh. really annoyed now, but the other one, and you two might be able to explain this to me because okay. I cannot fathom it at all. Nico Williams and Maxwell Cornet. Oh, no. I'm so Maxwell Cornet is off balance. <laughs> Quite clearly, he stepped on Nico Williams's boots. Yeah. Williams goes down. The ref misses it. Okay, that can happen. Not sure how. What's the VAR doing? It's a penalty. What are they doing? It's, it's a penalty. penalty. It's a penalty. I d- and There's they no explanation. Themselves. They just messed it up. Um, yes. And again, I, don't, I, I do not understand how you can miss that because you have this thing called slow motion replay where you get a second chance to see it. I understand why the referee missed it because in a sense it was happening at speed and he thought he'd dive. There was a bit of distance between the two and Cornet was stretching, right? So you could yeah. think, oh, okay, so he's gone to plant his foot down and there's no contact. He might have taken advice from his linesman who might have said, I didn't see any contact there. He's just gone down too easily. Fair enough. But the VAR can see it. Clearly, it's a penalty. It should have been a penalty. And that would have really caused David Moyes uh, some serious problems. Here's you know another what? one. It caused me you. problems. Go on, what caused it, you problems? It, Tell me. 
<laughs> well, it was a clear penalty. And I actually had a bet at the weekend that there'd be over two and a half goals in oh, right, okay. the nine so all about Premier you. League games. Well, yeah. that was the only game because of that decision where there weren't over two and a half goals. And I tell you what, the reason I had that bet, I've been looking at the stats. The previous two game weeks, there are only three games where there weren't over two and a half goals. I think, again, that reflects what we've been talking about in this podcast. The defending uh, in the Premier League maybe isn't the art that perhaps it once was. Yes. Well, I think football in general has been sort of curtailed by people like David Ellery and the IFAB. Defending has been sort of cold. They're trying to stop you being able to defend the way you used to be able to defend. So they want more goals. That's what they want and they're getting it because this is going to be probably the the, the season with the most goals um, since the Premier League began in terms of goals per game. Obviously, there's more. there were more games in the first few years of the competition. Finally... Handball, here we go. Levi Colwell. <laughs> On another week, that would have been a penalty. Yeah. It would have been. Yeah. Look, I yeah. mean, no one wants it to be a penalty. Everyone would have been up in arms, pardon the pun, if it had have been a penalty. However, we all know that we've seen decisions like that happen already this season, haven't we? Because there is a little tiny movement by the left arm. Towards, he doesn't know about it. And no. in slow motion, it looks more deliberate than it probably was. But we've seen that given. We've seen that given. Handball's completely broken. That of yeah. all the of all the laws we talk about. Not the about, only thing, Kev. There's lots of yeah, things. Oh, yeah, broken. exactly. But of all the complexities we talk about, handball is the one they've tied themselves up in knots with the most. Because we were talking last week, weren't we, about that utterly ridiculous Sheffield United penalty it was was there was it the the one where he's got his hands over the top of yeah. his head and they gave that penalty utterly utterly ridiculous and the fact that you look at that Colwell thing and think oh I could see a ref giving that <laughs> it's nonsense he doesn't know where the ball is he's done that and he's moved the ball and what you're doing is you're giving coaches a reason to say well we should have had a penalty because th- the other week they gave this and the yeah. other week they gave this Gary O'Neill's talked about this loads that lack of consistency and I just think it's time for IFAB to get together and say, right, we need to streamline this. We need to simplify it because this is nonsense, because it's happening not just in the Premier League, in other leagues as well. Nobody really knows how what a penalty is for handball and whether it's going to be given. It's ruining games. It's affecting games far too much. And we all hate and it. We nonsense. just all hate it. And the thing is, is what yeah. you've done, David Ellery, and I always seem to be picking on him and the IFAB, but it's because they're ruining the game. That's why. And I think they deserve all of the ire that we give them. Um, what, what you have done, David, is you've made us question our own sanity. Because if we're sitting there watching that game thinking, oh, that could be a penalty, that's mental. That's absolute craziness. So the fact that we're even questioning ourselves in those circumstances is entirely down to you and your idiotic interpretation of a handball law, which you've rewritten about 300 times in the last four years to the point where no one actually knows what it is anymore, even if they have the uh, sleep-inducing IFAB Laws of the Game app. Tottenham won uh, Wolves 2. Final thing we'll say on this, and I'll give Crook the opportunity because he doesn't like Ange Postacoglu. Um... Isn't this the trade-off, though? This is what you get, right? If you're going to play open attacking football with a high line and you're wedded to that philosophy and it's your staunch philosophical viewpoint, you have to deal with defeat, right? Because you're not going to win every week playing that way 
because there's always going to be a point where someone is faster, quicker or sharper than you on one or two occasions over the course of a season. Yeah, I get that. And uh, you won't find any Tottenham fan protesting about the way they play. But it was interesting speaking to Gary after the game, asking him, did you target the fullback areas because their first choice fullbacks were unavailable? And he said, no, we were going to target the fullbacks anyway because we know that they like to commit forward and it's going to leave space in behind. I just think his naivety and maybe a little bit of arrogance on Ange Postacoglu's part, that if you know you're up against someone with the capability that Pedro Neto has to turn defence into attack and run in behind and exploit those spaces, not just to tell your defence to sit back a little bit. And um, listen, this defeat's been coming for Spurs. They they could easily have lost to Brighton. They were mm-hmm. losing to Brentford at half time before mm-hmm. a second half rally. And And I just think... It'll be interesting to see what happens now because they've got some difficult fixtures between now and the end of the season. And if they were to miss out on the top four, they're already out of both cup competitions by mid-February. I just think you have to start questioning, have they made as much progress this season as perhaps we've credited them for? Well, they have because they can play a completely different way now and they've scored a lot more goals than they did at this stage last season under the previous manager. So it's therefore more entertaining. So yes, they have made progress. But why do you not like him? Is it because he doesn't look at you when you're doing an interview? <laughs> no, listen, it's not It's not necessarily that I don't like him. I just well, you think have been ranting about him bit... all weekend in the group. <laughs> we got... No, I just think we've got a little bit carried away. If you compare the two managers, Eric Ten Hag has been battered from pillar to post this season. There's so many off-field issues that he's had to contend with. And they're just about within touching distance Manchester United. He was pilloried for the signing of Rasmus Hoyland. Well, he's not being pilloried anymore. And Poster Cogler has got so much praise. He was, was pilloried he? over Hoyland. Yeah, absolutely. Hold on, hold yeah, on, hold on, hold on. That's not true. I've even fund. written down here today, right? Okay, that's not true. Because I've even written it here today saying it's difficult to be too effusive about any upturn in, in fortune with Manchester United because they can pull you in and let you down in the space of 30 minutes. But Rasmus Hoyland proving the Manchester United recruitment team were right to chase long-term promise rather than spend big on short-term for Harry Kane. I wrote that down earlier yeah. because I was saying to you well, in the summer I would rather go for someone younger than someone like Harry Kane because it's too much money. So you say you're just reinventing the will. No, I'm not talking about you. Again, I'm talking about the media in general and football You are in, in the media. Hoyland has been mocked at times this season. But my point is, Poster Cogner's got so much praise. He hasn't achieved anything yet. Yes, the football's better. But ultimately, again, this goes back to Kev's argument about West Ham. You're judged on results. Let's see where Tottenham end up at the end of the season. I thought that was a defeat that could have been avoidable at the weekend. I think he was naive. I can't believe you don't like him, mate. Uh, anyway, um, that's it. Uh, thank you very much for uh, your contributions this morning. Thank you very much for tuning in and watching the show and listening to the show as well. We'll be back uh, to preview all the week's action. And you never know, by the time we get to uh, the, 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 the weekend... It could all turn again because Manchester City and Liverpool both play in the Premier League between now and then. And both games are live on TalkSport. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com. 18 plus. Be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.